Hi, everyone. Today's guest is David Guilfoyle, better known as Gilly. And Gilly's going to show us how his career in the food industry has had many stops, and he's even had a significant break. But yet he could come back and have a wonderful career and make significant contributions in the food industry. If you are enjoying the Food Industry Insider, please follow and subscribe to the podcast. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We would really appreciate a five-star review on both Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This is a great zero-cost way to support our show. I'd like to welcome you today, Gilly. Thank you, Maureen. To our to our podcast. I'm looking forward to talking to you. Now, you're one of those, one of my rare people that went into the food industry on purpose. On purpose. And you have had a lot of jobs. And I am not saying that in a bad way. I am saying that you have had an opportunity to try different things, work for different people, work for different size companies. And so your career and your life has not been boring at all. So I'd, I'd, I'd like to talk about what's happening. And you, you can start wherever you want. You want to start with what's happening now or you want to start at the beginning? I'm going to let that all up to you. Yeah. So, you know, my beginning actually starts back in Ellsworth, Kansas at my mom, dad's Dairy Queen. Uh, and uh, so I started there when I was two, two and a half years old. I was dipping dilly bars from my high chair at two years old. So I was <sighs> helping my mother right away. You know, and, and, you know, it's just, it's funny how you get your start in, in food and, uh, you know, I grew up in the food business. So, you know, at the Dairy Queens and, and, uh, you know, just really love doing that. I love Dairy Queen. That's my favorite. Yeah. How yeah. long did your family, how long did your family own them? 51 years. We were franchisees. How many Dairy Queens did you have? Two. Two? Two. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So you did more than just the two-year-old dip and dilly bars. You did it for a long time. Oh, I did for a very long time. So I, I grew up in it. My, uh, Grade school years, junior high, high school, college—you <laughs> name it. I was, you know, I was in, in engrossed in the whole thing, and and uh, so, you know, I, I went into college thinking, you know, I was going to go into business, and and because uh, I kind of wanted to get out of the the food business a little bit, um, and so when I went to college, I was going to go, you know, for my my bachelor uh, administration. Uh, uh, or, you know, business administration, uh, and, you know, the bachelor administration. Uh, so I, I thought that's what I was going to do. And I ended up, uh, not really liking it that much. And so, uh, my mother and father had suggested that maybe I should go to the culinary Institute of, uh, culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York. And so, um, went there and loved it. And I got, you know, proper instruction on how, you know, you do cooking techniques and things like that. And, and, uh, really learned a lot at the CIA there in Hyde Park, New York. And while I was there, I ended up, uh, talking with one of the chef instructors cause he, uh, actually was telling me, well, you know, I see you here on weekends in the bake shop, you know, helping us out is, is baking really what you'd like to do. And I said, yeah, absolutely. And so he gave me a couple options. He said, well, uh, one option is actually go to the pastry school there at, at CIA, or you can go to this other uh, school that's more technical focused and research focused, but it's out in the middle of nowhere. It's in the sticks. And I said, well, where is it at? He says, Manhattan, Kansas. And I started laughing and he goes, well, why are you laughing? I said, because I'm from a 
you know, my hometown is actually just a, an hour and a half away from Manhattan. I didn't even know that school was there. And that's the American wow. Institute of Baking. So went to school at, at uh, AIB. And um, so I was there in the 19-week course. Let's stop for a second. Sure. Gilly, we've, we, I've never talked to anybody about the, about the Institute. Tell us yeah. about it. Tell us what kind of courses, what kind of people go there. Tell me everything you can, because I'm serious. I've talked to a lot of food scientists, but I haven't talked to anybody that's gone to AIB. So here's your chance to tell us all about it. It's really uh, engrossed into how do you do formulation work for, for bakery. And it focuses in on functions and ingredients within bakery, but it also uh, you focus on process. There is some scientific uh, piece that happens with that with serial science uh, testing and that actually was very interesting to me, you know, so testing out flour and, and trying to understand what what makes up flour and and how how can different flowers be rheologically different. And so that was really so unique and so fascinating to me. So uh, it delved into uh, those areas. There, there was uh, some uh, management piece, but that wasn't as interesting as the, the scientific piece. So uh, loved uh, going through that at at the school uh, during the course. That was a resident course and it was just a short term. I mean, this is not, somebody does not have to go, this is not like going to college and have to go there for, for a year or something. Right. So a lot of, uh, a lot of the industry used to send their, their folks or select folks in there, you know, like supervisors and, and others to learn about the baking process and, and functional degrees, the reason why it's so important. Uh, to get more in-depth uh, knowledge in, into the baking industry. And uh, so, um, you know, there were some people who, who didn't grow up in the bakery industry but um, wanted to learn more about baking, and that, that was me. So I was in, in with uh, people who had actually worked in, in the baking industry for, you know, anywhere from five to ten years. And, and uh, so um, we... Uh, we all kind of helped each other out through the course there. So um, I stayed on the staff because I, I felt like I needed to uh, and worked for Ron Zelch there at AIB. And so I was a teaching assistant and uh, did that for a semester. And uh, I learned a lot from him and I learned a lot just by doing testing while the students were in, in uh, the lecture piece. I could actually do testing out in the lab. And so I did a lot of you know, testing on my own to try to understand functions ingredients better. And then uh, there, there was an opportunity to move over to research. And so I took that uh, opportunity to go work for Dr. Uh, Marina Lipnick. Uh, and so I uh, uh, learned a lot more in the research side. And then that's where I really started taking off and, and really understanding where I really wanted to be. So where'd you go from there? Uh, I stayed on there uh, and went back to school at K-State. Uh, in food science and uh, decided to uh, go the food science route because I wanted to learn about the bigger breadth of, of everything. Uh, that and plus one of the uh, instructors, she was a dietitian there at, at CIA, actually had come to visit me at, at AIB. She was in for a dietetics association uh, conference there at K-State. And so she wanted to come up and see me. And so she was telling me, you know, I think you should really go into food science. <laughs> And she said, I've met uh, some of uh, the professors there, and I think that you would be a good fit. So I'm going to put you in contact with this professor. 
And so she did. And, and I, I, uh, got in there and started going through school at, at K State to finish up my bachelor of science in food science. Yeah. Was there any reason why you went to the food science and didn't get the bakery science? Because K-State's big on the bakery science or cereal science degree. It is. Uh, I was more interested in food food sensory analysis. And so I was able to focus my efforts more in the food science area in, in uh, sensory analysis and loved it. Oh, okay. So, so um, you know, it, it it took a whole different twist on how you work with, with uh, uh, food and with, with uh, consumers. And so that's what was really more intriguing to me. Uh, I learned a lot, you know, from the food science end of it, but uh, the statistics, the psychology behind it all, it was just fascinating. So I went ahead and, and uh, you know, focused my efforts on food sensory analysis. A lot of people think that sensory is more about just tasting and looking at and feeling the product. But I warn people when they talk to me about sensory, I say, you realize that you're going to have a lot of math. You're going to have statistics because it really doesn't matter what it tastes like, what it feels like, or what it looks like. You have to measure all those things and what people like and dislike and where you're trying to get to. Yeah. And there's, there's psychology involved in this too, because you have to understand what actually triggers people to really like a product. And sometimes it goes back to their childhood. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's so fascinating to see how that happens and, and uh, you know, what are the diff- different trigger points? How do you get inside a person's head to understand what what actually works for them? And, and as far as a population, you know, there's, there's all sorts of different triggers that we go through. And it brings up all these sensations. And it's like, I remember that from my childhood. And I just love that. And I, I'm going to go back and buy that product again and, and keep on rebuying it. Now, I'm one of those people who thinks about something they had from their childhood. And I'm like, oh, I really liked that. And then they go back and try it. Yeah. And like, ew. One was, <laughs> one was I'll, give you, I'll give you a quick story. One was my family always went up to this cabin in the woods. We had uh-huh. a cabin, well, cabin trailer. And on the way, we stopped at this ice cream store every time. And we did that for, I don't know, like 10, 12 years. Well, then I grow up, go to college, get married. I move away. I come back and move closer, you know, to this area. And I go on a camping trip with my my children. And we are coming back from the camping trip. And I'm telling them a story about this ice cream store I used to go on the way home from our camping trip. And these friends had said, you should stop at this ice cream store on the way home. And we pull up and I almost started to cry. It was the ice cream store. The one here I had been living. It it was only like 20 miles north of me for like five years. And I didn't even know it. I call my mother. I'm like, why didn't you tell me this was here? And she's (laughs) like, I don't know. And so I go in the store. It even has a screen door that slams a certain way. It's still painted green. I walk in. Nothing's changed. I haven't been there since I was like 12 years old, but nothing's changed. And I go up to get White House ice cream. And White House ice cream is vanilla ice cream with maraschino cherries. Oh. And I can't wait. That's the only thing I ever got. Never <laughs> even tried a different ice cream. So I order that, I get it, I walk outside and I taste it. I went, ew, this is, I I don't even like this. It's like, whoever thought of putting maraschino cherries in vanilla ice cream? This isn't even any good. 
And I had to laugh because I had built up this whole thing that I was going to relive my this childhood experience that was so special to me. And I've never eaten that ice cream again. Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> we stop all the time. We still go there. But I have other other flavors of ice cream because I thought, <laughs> yeah, there's a childhood memory we're not going to relive. <laughs> so I'm I love very that. careful. I'm very careful about my childhood memory. Sometimes remake a recipe and I'm like, oh, this tasted so much better when I was a kid. And that happens sometimes. You know, and, oh, and yeah. you know, sometimes products actually change. Uh, you know, so they've they've made modifications to it to change the the flavor or the the texture or what it may be. And uh, there's a story behind that with uh, you know, when I was at Pizza Hut and and um, you know we we were doing some design work and, and actually trying to uh, do some cost savings uh, efforts with it, with uh, some of the products at Pizza Hut. And uh, one of the sensory analyst people uh, and, and one of the uh, designers there said, you know, it's death by a thousand pinpricks because what we what may have rolled out in Pizza Hut way back when doesn't even look very similar or taste very similar to what it was before. And it's very true because, you know, each little step actually, you know, they say, well, it's still the same, still the same. Well, they didn't go back to the very original and, and try to measure against the very original because that's what people really remember is they're very original. And I think that's uh, been part of the issue with, with uh, some of that. But uh, we had a uh, CEO uh, at the time. He said, you know, I remember when Pizza Hut was really, really grand as far as the, the, the food and the pizzas and everything else, and the dough. And, and uh, it just doesn't seem that way anymore. And so we had to go back into the salt mines there in Hutchison get the, the formulations, the original formulations, bring them back up, and then we had to work with our vendors to try to recreate the specifications for those, uh, for all those ingredients. And it was fascinating because where we were before is what I remember as, as a child as well, and where we, were, where we were at at that time was completely different. And, and uh, so it comes back to the, the death by a thousand pinpricks. <laughs> Isn't that what some companies refer to as the gold standard? They'll have, instead of, and I guess this was explained to me, people will take the gold standard and they'll reformulate or change it, or it's gone, you know, it's been a couple of years, and they go back and test it. But if you test it to last month or six or six months ago, you've moved from that standard. And if you keep yeah. doing that, you actually can move very far away. But some companies are very adamant. You have to compare it back to the original every time. So we yeah. never get more than six months or a year away from the original. Yeah. And I think that some companies aren't as good at that, you know, making sure true. that they test, test to, isn't that the term they use, the gold standard? Go back yeah. to their original, yeah. their original, the original one. That brings up another story about when I was at uh, Donato's. Somebody in purchasing said, well, we've never changed the stove, but uh, it keeps on failing during the proofing process. I said, well, um, have you changed the dough at all? Oh, no, it's never been changed. Well, come to find out, it actually had been. <laughs> and that was their, their signature is the dough piece. So I went, I went to one of the original uh, guys who – who started up with Jim Grody. And, and uh, so I, I went back to Donna's and I said, listen, uh, I want to see what the original formulation is. And so we can take a look at it. He pulls out this little thin piece of paper that had been folded 
and it was starting to, to dry out and, and, and discolor a little bit. And he said, well, here it is. And, and I said, well, A, we need to put that on glass. <laughs> we need yeah. to, you know, have that somewhere where it can be remain safe. And so then I, I went back to the original formulation. I said, well, everything's changed on this. And so we went back to the original and, and the dough started popping the way it's supposed to with the fermentation and, and in the oven and everything looked really, really good and it tasted great. And I said, now we can actually kind of back off some of the original ingredients, but we have to keep track of the, the sugars and the salts and everything else because they were switching out uh, whole milk uh, solids to uh, whey and well, they're not equal. And they, that's what they did was they, they switched out, you know, completely uh, and made it equal, but well, you know, they don't operate as equal. So you have to be very, very careful with some of these things. I think that people don't realize that it is necessary to change ingredients. Sometimes it could be cost, could be availability, mm-hmm. but you can't just, you, you have to try your best to make sure that what the change you made didn't change the product. Right. The, the original, <clears throat> I was just an example, the original Twinkie recipe is not like it is now because some no, of those ingredients, <laughs> some of those ingredients, A, we can't have anymore because they don't meet the FDA and they have to make the right switch and make sure it's still a Twinkie. But, you know, you, you just, there's some ingredients out there we're just not using anymore. Yeah. Now, I noticed in your list of companies you've worked for that you worked for Anheuser-Busch. That's not a baking company. Anheuser-Busch. Is a brewing company, but at the time they owned uh, Campbell Taggart, which is a baking company. And because oh, okay. Anheuser Busch made yeast, and they thought that they could use their yeast in in the bakery company called Campbell Taggart, and then that also included Merico. So Campbell Taggart was a, a fairly large size uh, regional um, bakery company, uh, and you know fairly decent size actually, and uh, so. Anheuser-Busch owned them, and then uh, we also had uh, Eagle Snacks. I don't know if you remember Eagle Snacks or not, uh, but um, I worked on some of the Eagle Snack stuff, and then uh, for the like the Cheddar Snack, uh, actually helped create that one, and then uh, worked on the pretzel for that. Uh, but on the uh, bakery side, I, I did a lot of work in frozen dough for them, and so uh, that's what I did for about four or four and a half years with them. So. Um, it was fun. I, I enjoyed working <sighs> for Anheuser Bush. I loved the, the culture there. I had one beer project to, to work on, but it wasn't really enough to keep me around when they downsized the whole thing. And but the the culture there was that you know instead of saying, "Well, here's your here's your papers go," uh, they said, "You know, work here. Uh, you've got a couple of months to to figure out what you want to do, and then we can help you with with." Uh, uh, while you're looking, we can help you as well. And but I still had a job all the way through until I was able to make the switch over. So, but I I had three different offers coming out of Anheuser Busch, which was amazing. You know, uh, I had one with Nestle Frozen, uh, one with Starbucks, and then Pizza Hut. And I went with the mm-hmm. Pizza Hut uh, opportunity, yeah. and and uh, that was great. So every step along the way in my career, you know, and, and as you said, I I job hopped around uh, quite a bit. Some of it was. You know, my doing some of it was actually because they, uh, you know, the company that I was working for all of a sudden shut up and, and that was it. So uh, I lost my job. So um, so there's there are different uh, situations where 
you know, uh, you may be working for a company that you just absolutely adore and love, but you may end up um, being downsized out and, and uh, or right-sized, whatever you want to call it. Um, and then you end up uh, finding even, an even better job down down the pathway. So, you know, uh, people who are growing up in the food uh, food industry shouldn't be discouraged when something like that happens because, you know, the next thing you know, you're going to get a call from somebody and they're going to say, come work for me. So, and that's, that's happened a couple different times for me as well. Yeah. I think that you, you've pointed out something that people should, should pay attention to is that especially when they write resumes or they fill out LinkedIn or whatever. And I know LinkedIn doesn't give you enough choices. They, they kind of force you to go and put it, put it, fill in the blank, you know, for what they have on their drop down menu. But People will assume that when you work for a company, you must work for whatever their flagship product is, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'll get resumes from people that says they work for Kraft and it's Kraft Heinz now. So they're really in the Heinz part, not the Kraft. Or I think, you know, I test people all the time. I go, okay, it's Kraft. Tell me what product you think of. And I could have six people blurt out six different things because Kraft means something different to every person. So Important, an important thing is that you having Anheuser-Busch on there instead of Campbell Taggart, people go, oh, he worked for, he worked for a beer company, but no, he didn't. So it's like bad, bad assumptions. The food industry, when I started in this 30 years ago, companies didn't change hands. They didn't change names. They didn't, everybody stayed, stayed where they were, stayed put and carried on. But right about the 30-year mark, I'd say right about the mid uh, middle of the 90s, people started buying each other out and start oh, making new divisions, and it went crazy. So when I ask somebody what company they work for, and they have on their, on their LinkedIn, like you did, Anheuser-Busch, but it wasn't Anheuser-Busch, it was Campbell Taggart, but you don't have a space to put Campbell Taggart because that company doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, I actually worked for Anheuser-Busch, and I worked in corporate research development, which is really the think tank for all the companies that we owned. Uh, so yeah, Camel Taggart see? is one of them. So I I, I supported Camel Taggart in the technological area because of my baking expertise, and that's the reason why Anheuser-Busch. Yeah, it's like assuming if you work at Kraft, you must be on cheese. But me, I yeah. go to I go to Miracle Whip and salad dressing. When someone says craft, you know, so, so you, you get different thoughts on different products. So you did that. So, and that obviously that baking led you to Pizza Hut. And then, and then after that, you went to Smuckers just for a year. What went on at Smuckers? I really didn't care for the culture at Pizza Hut because uh, it was changing quite a bit. And, and mm-hmm. it was not really part of what I really wanted to do um, in it just wasn't as technical as what I was thinking it would be. Uh, I enjoyed, you know, I enjoyed doing all the commercial shoots and, and all the uh, photography work because, you know, that's what I got to work on as well uh, with all the new products that I helped develop and then, and then other products as well. So I excelled at that piece and, uh, and I love doing still photography with, with the, the uh, photographers and then working on commercial shoots that you know, show your product actually, out on the marketplace, which was absolutely fun to, to watch. Um, but um, I was just kind of missing something. I really, like I said, I didn't care for the culture because it was kind of a churn and burn type of culture. And I need one, something that was going to be a little bit more steady. 
And so I went to Smuckers and uh, thinking that I would be more in a steady environment. And it, and it was. And But they hired me with the premise of, well, we're going to get into baking as well. Uh, but, you know, uh, we don't really understand it and we need your expertise. Well, they didn't they didn't really uh, do that <laughs> even through the entire year. It wasn't until after, uh, you know, while after when they got on the Encrustables that they really started getting the baking piece. Um, but I was I had an opportunity to move back to, to Kansas and, and work for Coke Industries and uh, on on a project uh, for Coke Insane Foods. And uh, yeah. so I was able to transfer some of that knowledge from what I learned at, at Smuckers on preserving uh, jams and jellies and, and other mm-hmm. items back into the bakery industry and then use that for for the next position I had, which was at, at Coke Insane Foods. So so now at Smuckers, I, I was recruiting for those jobs at the time. Mm-hmm. And we kept getting turndowns from bakery people. And I told them, I said, no bakery person wants to come here unless you have an oven, you have flour, you uh-huh. have some shortening. I said, they want yeast. They want to bake. Yeah. There isn't a bakery person out there who wants to sit at a desk. And they said, well, we just want their knowledge right now. I said, I don't care. You have to <laughs> let them bake or they're not coming. Yeah. And they actually put the jobs on hold for a year before they went back out to look for people because they wanted to make sure. And I don't remember if you went there before or after they had all the ovens and all those things because they were taking on Martha White at the time and taking on uh, the inner the interstate brands, the Pillsbury brands, basically. They were taking on the Pillsbury brands. So were you there for the Pillsbury brands or did they come after you? No, nope, that's way before Way before me. So they did have the Pillsbury brands? Yeah, but they had they had wanted to hire all these bakery people, but they weren't gonna have them bake. <laughs> but you can't do that. They won't they won't stay. They won't work here. And they were convinced that it would be fine. And Smuckers is another one of those companies where people, if I ask them what does Smuckers make, they all say jam and jelly. Yeah. And that is the smallest bit of their profit center. They make more money off of coffee. Oh, I know. And pet and pet food, and they used to own Crisco, but they sold. They got rid of Crisco um, a couple of years ago. But they make more money off of coffee and pet food than they do of any jam or jelly. But they're known for jam or jelly. Yeah, they now are making more the most money off of Uncrustables. <laughs> oh yes, the finished product. Yeah, so I I actually um, was there when they were just in initial. Development of, of Uncrustables, and, and the engineer was asking me, "Well, what would you choose for equipment?" And, and so I, I told him, and, and uh, so the process equipment, and things like that. And uh, he didn't want to listen to me, so I said, "No, that's fine. You know, everyone do it. That's fine." But this is how I would set up the bakery uh, for that. Now, I was I went to visit them after the bakery was set up, and you know, I'm a recruiter. I don't work in the food industry. I don't know anything you know, about food plants as far as like actually working there. Cause we don't, that's what we do. And I, my husband and I go and it's summer and it's like 90 degrees out. So we show up in shorts and we told them we were coming by. We weren't, this wasn't going to be like put our suits on and come in for a professional visit. They insisted we could just come, come as we were. 
or they missed the come as we were meant long pants, closed toed shoes, no jewelry. <laughs> so we had to go back out, change our clothes, come back in, and we got to go through the whole plant of making the Uncrustables, and it was fantastic. Yeah. And then at the end, this was the best part. They gave us some, okay? But I will tell you begrudgingly, I thought that was really weird. You're throwing thousands away because they're not perfectly cut, but you were afraid to give us some. But they gave us some. And I took them out to my kids, and they were so delicious, freshly made, not having been frozen yet. They were amazing. So, but that, that, was, one, that was one plant I did get to see, was the Uncrustables. Yeah, that's so, one in Scottsville. Yeah. So you left there and then you went then you and you went to um do you say Coke Industries? Yeah, Coke they say Industries. It? Yeah. Okay. K O C H. And and these are owned by the Coke brothers that are the very wealthy guys who yes. oil was part of their business, but they also had a farming and ranching business as well. So uh they were heavy into oil, of course, but they were heavy into and fractionated uh, of, of uh, distillates there, uh, but uh, they were heavy into uh, ranching and uh, agriculture, which is more based on wheat wheat farms that they had. Uh, so they uh, actually had their own lineup of, of uh, barbecue and other stuff uh, that that they produced out of their cattle, uh, which was amazing. Uh, so it it was a it was a wonderful experience at Coke. Uh, I really enjoyed working for there, uh, even though it was a year and a half uh, there. But well, what products did you work on? So it was uh, on uh, par-baked pizza crusts that were shelf-stable. Oh, okay. And so um, a couple other brothers came in and said, hey, if you invest in this, we know people who will come uh, to, to buy the product. And uh, that didn't exactly happen, but, you know, it was uh, it was a... Uh, fun exercise. <laughs> do they still do it? Do they still make those? No, no. The only interesting thing I have to say about Coke is that one of the Coke brothers lives lived behind me. Oh, really? He was the youngest brother, and he okay. his his house is still there. It's it's now in you know it's it's some it's the estate, and the, they have a, a management group that manages. They're not renting or anything. They they're making it into like a museum. But he was the he was the youngest one of the Koch brothers. He was the one that never married, who was uh-huh. in the arts, and it's so the largest the world's largest collection of artwork is in the mansion that's behind my house. I've never been there, but he died like I'm gonna say five years ago, maybe. He was pretty old, and he he was never he was paid off to leave the family, so he was never involved in this uh, in any of these endeavors that you did. He had left the he had left the family business years and years. I mean, like forty years ago. <laughs> so he he's he wasn't in it. So you left there. You said that they they closed the business. Did they let did they lay you off? Yep. They laid us all off. Uh, so they came in one day and said, you know, the numbers just aren't matching up and, and uh, that's it. We're, we're going to mothball the whole thing. And so they told us you have two hours to pack up your desk. And, and then, uh, you know, that was it. So um, some cool stuff, though, that happened while we we're there. Uh, in a, I, I was able to transfer some of the preservation knowledge from, from Smuckers into what I was working on there at, at Coke, uh, uh, the Coke Institute. Uh, foods piece was that uh, 
uh, so they, they hired me. And then uh, my first day, I start there. And two hours later, I'm being pulled into this meeting saying, we're having problems with, with uh, mold and, and uh, it's the products aren't being shelf life. Like, I thought this thing was a done deal, you know, that all, you'd done all this work to, to make sure that the product was stable through that shelf life. And <laughs> my boss goes, well, there, there are a few issues. And he said, that's the reason why you're here. <laughs> oh, <Yeah>. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Did you figure it out? Oh yeah. 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 We, uh, you know, it, it took uh, several of us to, to figure it all out, but um, you know, there I was just brand new, so I had no idea that you know there was all this other going on in the background. And, and they're saying, "Well, do you know of anybody that knows how to preserve better the 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 crust?" And I said, "Well, you know, we can call uh, this one person from from uh, uh, K State and and uh, Dr. Fung uh, and Dr. Daniel Fung." And I said, "You know." he should be able to give us some ideas as far as where the, the touch points are for what we need to correct. And so they said, Oh yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll bring him in. Okay, fine. So we, we meet with him and he's going through and he's auditing and he goes, well, here's, here's some problems. And, and uh, so uh, he helped us out a little bit uh, still was seeing a lot of issues. Well, uh, the uh, plant manager at the time, said, well, um, I'm going to throw out all this product that's in the warehouse because it's going moldy. Um, you know, we're going to send it off to, to the pigs. And I said, before you do that, I just want to record the packaging and take a look at the packaging because uh, if there's something wrong with, with why the product is going moldy, it's probably starting with the packaging first. And so we, I started out uh, doing it by myself, and then I – uh, recruited one of the QA people in to, to help me with it. We went through about 2,000 packages and we were recording all the information on. I was looking at the seals on every one of the packages, uh, looking at, you know, which ones were molding, which ones weren't. Collected all that data and uh, Coke, uh, the, the brothers who uh, were uh, doing this whole thing with the pizza crust, our big pizza crust, uh, they uh, we're going to back to the Coke uh, team saying, hey, we need more money. And because uh, we want to put in this laminar airflow, we want to do, uh, you know, uh, these different lights to help uh, keep the microbial count down, all that sort of stuff. Well, as Coke was about ready to give them uh, about $7 million, I had actually figured out the whole thing uh, by looking at all the packages and figured out, there's holes in packages and there's, there's uh, inclusions in the, in the packaging uh, seals that's allowed even oxygen in into the uh, product. And so I went back to uh, my counterpart at Coke Industries and I said, listen, I think all we have to do is just make good, good sealed packages. That's it. And, and he goes, what? And I said, Look, here's all my data. <laughs> he goes, okay. We're going to crunch the numbers a little bit more. We're, we've got a, a statistician who can actually help us out with this. And sure enough, it was just it came down to uh, the package. The package seals were not being made correctly, uh, and uh, there were holes in some of the some of the packages at the bottoms and all that stuff. And, and uh, so the seven million dollars was you know deboshed. And uh, but we were able to say I was able to help save 
uh, Coke Industries from making the $7 million mistake, uh, that whole thing. So you're thinking, at this point, you're thinking, I should have said to them, if I can save you $7 million, will you give me one? Yeah. <laughs> and then you tell them the idea so that they give you a million dollars for saving them six. Right? Right, right. That's the way it should work. The way it should work. So, um, you know, I was uh, so the way that Coke Industries runs their their whole uh, employee review process is done on a monthly basis, not at the end of the year. So it's done on a monthly basis. And uh, so you're reviewed every month and you're bonused every month based on that that review. So I got heavily bonused. <laughs> During that next three months, it wasn't a million (laughs) dollars, but I got heavily bonused on on uh, what I was able to contribute and and uh, helping them save uh, save them from making a seven million dollar mistake. So it was wow. That's what I learned a lot about is you have to speak up, you know, and you have to be able to uh, say I know I'm right and I this is here's my data and I know what I need to do to make the correction for it. It may it may make other people upset with you, but I know I'm right, and I think that's this is what's better for business. So you left there and you went to Donato's Pizza. How'd you get that job? So uh, I was without a job for about uh, two and a half months, and uh, so when uh, Coke uh, NCM Foods closed down and we mothballed the whole thing, um, I was without a job for about two months, and I was getting worried that because I was sending out you know, feelers to other uh, companies and send out resumes and all that stuff. I was getting worried that uh, nothing was going to happen for me, and I thought that was like the end of my career. So I was uh, living at home with my parents and and uh, thinking, oh God, this is this is going to be the end of me. So um, <laughs> you're going to go back to Dairy Queen and, and do some ice cream cones. Did you did you do Dairy Queen? <laughs> I did. I did just for a, a short moment, but I had a. I had an old boss uh, who called me up and said, "Hey, uh, what are you doing right now?" I said, "Well, I'm I'm without a job, but you know, I'm looking for something." And she goes, "Let me get a hold of Dave Munz, who was our boss uh, at Pizza. Let me get a hold of Dave Munz. Uh, I think we have an opportunity for you." Cool. And so he called me up right away, and he goes, "Hey, I I don't know if you remember me." I said, "Yeah, I remember you, Dave." And so. Um, and I'm actually driving through Kansas city at the time, you know, I'm trying to take this phone call and I've got him on speakerphone. Of course, my parents were with me in, in the, in the car and I'm talking to him and, and I said, so what is this? Where is it at? And what, what is it that you're looking for? And he goes, well, I need somebody with your experience that, uh, that has pizza has, uh, knows how to build pizzas and knows how the ingredients work and all this stuff. Uh, for dough and all that, and I need somebody that that uh, uh, I can uh, trust in, in doing it correctly. I said, "Fine, I can I can do that." I said, "Where is it at?" He says, "It's in Columbus, Ohio." I was like, "What?" <laughs> did, you, and did your mom say anything? <laughs> My parents were just looking at me, and I was like, "You know, this is how it's going to go." He says, "I'm going to go ahead and set up an interview with you. Have you have you come in an interview with us?" This next week, are you available? I said, absolutely. So I had uh, had my bags packed, you know, a couple uh, or a bag packed with, you know, a couple uh, changes of clothes in there. And uh, so I interviewed there. And then 
uh, Dave took me out to dinner that night. He said, so what do you think? And I said, yeah, I, I think this is fun and interesting. I think it's, uh, it's really, really cool what you're trying to accomplish, which was uh, it's trying to take a regional concept and prep it for globalization uh, from, from the point of view of, of McDonald's. And so, uh, so I said, Dave, you know, I, I think it's a nice place and, and I like the people. And he goes, that's great to hear because this is your first day. I was like, what? He says, yeah, you, you're now on the payroll. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he said, this is your uh, first day. And I said, I don't have any cha- extra change. Of, well, I only have one extra change of clothes. That's it. I said, you know, what am I going to do? And he goes, don't worry. There's washers and dryers somewhere, I'm sure. So we'll, we'll get you taken care of. And he said, by the way, tomorrow you're actually flying out to Tulsa, uh, Oklahoma to talk to a vendor about dough. I said, okay. And when when did you discuss salary? Uh, we didn't. He said, you know, that's it. And and I mean, what he what they uh, eventually told me, they said, well, this is the, your salary. It's like, well, I love that. You know, it was it was way more than what I was ever making before. And and uh, huh. so they they treated me well. Oh well, good. <laughs> they really wanted me on board, and so they they made sure that I was going to be satisfied with everything. So now I have to I have to stop you for a second because when sure. I met you, when I met you. And I was talking to you about different jobs. You told me, black and white, without a doubt, you had to be near the beach. You had to be near water. You had to be on a coast, west coast or east coast, but you had, because you wanted to surf. And I was like, what? <laughs> and it took a couple job changes of yours for for me to call you up and say, "Okay, this this dream of being at the beach, this is a <laughs> pipe dream. You are lying to yourself, and you're lying to me. You, and if you look, you've never been near the beach." <laughs> I actually have. So, um, so uh, when I had the opportunity to go from from Columbus, Ohio, down to Miami. Uh, and so I took a position with, with Burger King. So good transition there. I love that. I'll never forget. I even have your old file where it's written on there. <laughs> Only will consider beach opportunities. I wonder how many jobs I missed giving you because I thought they weren't near the beach. Be careful what you wish for, right? So I think it's probably because I was stuck in Oroville for a bit. <laughs> I don't know where this was. I, I'd have to go back and look what year it was. But okay. So why, after three and a half years, did you leave Donato's Pizza? Tell me about tell me about Donato's Pizza, what you made there, and then what eventually led you to leave. Yeah, so I actually created their thick crust. Uh, I don't think they're selling anymore, but I created their thick crust pizza for them. Uh, so I did all that work. Uh, found the vendor to work with them on that, and and uh, they're they're they were based in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and uh, so I was able to do a lot of um, uh, work on that crust, and and we were trying to you know ex- expand the the menu enough uh, to make it uh, better for everybody. So uh, thick crust I, I created for them, uh, created the whole proofing system for them because instead of doing hot proofing. Uh, we uh, went to a cold proof system, so I created that whole uh, system on cold proofing, and uh, they they were thinking originally, well, this can't be done. Well, I showed them how to do it, and uh, that goes back to my Anheuser-Busch days, and as well as Smuckers. 
So um, I showed them how to do that piece, and, and uh, we have a patent on that. And uh, then uh, I worked on the original crust. That's where I uh, went back to the, the original uh, recipe on, for it, and I said, well, we need to keep that somewhere else that is protected better because <laughs> that's, that's like yes. history. And uh, so I got them back to a something closer to the original, uh, but not as costly as the original. So, um, but I was able to work through all that with, with uh, understanding how you, how do you formulate with the different ingredients to make that happen. So um, then I just worked on uh, with the, the other chef there, uh, Stephanie uh, Vandenberg and she and I worked on, on uh, a lot of different uh, new news product lines uh, for, or Donato's, and uh, it was really a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it, and I got to travel uh, a lot. And uh, so I had an office in in Columbus, Ohio, in Columbus, Ohio, but I had another office over in Munich, Germany. So I was traveling back and forth uh, to Munich, Germany, uh, and trying to get the Munich uh, Donato's uh, restaurants up and running. But I also had to help with getting the ingredients uh, selected for that work with the vendors to make sure that the ingredients were actually correct. How many restaurants did they have? They got up to, I think it's like three or four uh, restaurants they eventually got to, but uh, the very original one was on uh, Rikostrasse, uh, just right across the street from the Poliner brewing uh, plant there. So Ooh. that was fun. And how many restaurants did they have in the United States? Uh, at that time, I think they were like 186 uh, restaurants. We had uh, of course, Columbus, the Columbus area. We had uh, Cleveland, uh, down in the Cincinnati area, and then uh, all the way down in in uh, uh, Atlanta. And we were just expanding into Atlanta area. And uh, so, are they still around? Yeah, they're growing. They're growing again. Yeah, because we don't have them in Pittsburgh, so I wouldn't know. Yeah, they're expanding. You can actually find them in uh, Red Robins in in some of the Red Robins that are uh, available. So. Uh, you can go in and get a Donato's pizza there. So I didn't know that. Yeah. I will have to look at that next time. So they did some co-branding uh, things. So uh, Tom Krause, who was our uh, chief marketing officer, he, I, I love working with, with him, and, and uh, it was a lot of fun um, doing like commercial shoots and things like that with him and, and uh, really understanding how do you take that regional concept and, and prep it for expansion and he he had a lot of great ideas there now since this was one of those companies where you had to keep kind of going back to the original how do you handle changing ingredients and trying to keep the taste keep the integrity of the product that's a challenge um and it took a lot of uh, iterations in working with your vendors to get those iterations made correctly and uh uh the original uh like the original sausage meat was actually raw. It was baked onto the pizza. Uh, so uh, because of food protection stuff and all that, uh, we had to switch it over to a sausage that was actually pre-cooked uh, so we wouldn't have any issues uh, and with cross-contamination. And, and uh, so <clears throat> we were able to, to do that while I was there as well. So uh, working with uh, the different vendors, we were able to get the texture uh, similar and and uh, get the product to look uh, really really good. Were they using raw dough or were they using par baked crust? Uh, no, raw dough. So it was uh, frozen 
and then we would uh, slack it out uh, on the pans, and then it'd go into the the uh, cold ferment system. And so uh, we went from only having four hours of shelf lifetime on that dough to having right around 36 to 40 uh, hours of, of uh, uh, usable shelf life of that product. That's the one thing I'm really terrible in making is bread. I've never figured it out. <laughs> and I made my first sourdough loaf of bread last week. My daughter-in-law coached me through it all the way and I made my first loaf and it came out beautiful. Oh, good. But I'm don't know if I can do it again. <laughs> so we'll, we will we will see. So what happened to Donato's? Why'd you leave there? Yeah, I thought it was about time for me to go. You know, I'd been with them for three, three and a half years. And so I thought, well, uh, I need a new experience. And so uh, a recruiter had called me up and said, I think I've got the perfect job for you. <laughs> I was like, okay. And she goes, you're going to love where the location is. It's down in Miami. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and went down there for my interview. Uh, I actually did the phone interviews while I was in New York City working on a commercial shoot. <laughs> and uh, so uh, they wanted to bring me in and, and uh, do the formal interview. And at that time, I actually had long hair. <laughs> so I had my hair pulled back. I, I didn't have time to go from New York City back to uh, Columbus, Ohio to get my hair cut and all that sort of stuff. So I just went, went as is and, and, uh, I had my hair pulled back and, and, uh, it was so funny cause, um, they kept on staring at my head <laughs> the whole entire time. They really weren't looking at my eyes. They were looking at my hair and, uh, you know, were fascinated with that whole thing. So, um, but I, uh, I got through the interview process and, and they hired me, uh, you know, rather quickly. And, uh, so uh, it was so funny because my boss there was uh, Peter Gibbons, and he was he was just fun. I I just love the man, and uh, he uh, said, "Okay, when you're in the kitchen, you know the test kitchen, and you see the CEO hide behind something." I was like, "Okay, what's that about?" And so I uh, had done a lot of the baking. I was in charge of all the bakery stuff uh, for for Burger King, so that would include the hamburger buns, anything that that was uh, baking based. I, uh, I had a hand in and, and uh, making sure to manage the quality for that, but also uh, just looking at the formulations and trying to improve what they were getting already. And so um, I happened to be in the test kitchen and I had my hair back, pulled back and, and the CEO, uh, uh, Brad Bloom, actually caught, caught a look at me and he came searching for me. He goes, I want to talk to you. And I said, okay, what's the matter? He goes, I love what you're doing with our bakery program and, and what you're, you know, what you're able to accomplish. And, and, uh, everybody's been trying to hide you from me because you have long hair. I was like, well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, I just had to laugh and he goes, I think you're doing a terrific job and it doesn't matter whether you have long hair or not. <laughs> now, was it long enough that you could put it in a ponytail? Uh-huh. Yeah. You're a little, just a little too far out there for him, huh? <laughs> well, I I heard this funny quote one time, and I don't remember who was CEO at the time, because I don't remember what year it was, but the CEO was a health nut. And they were commenting about, why do you work for Burger King? Because that's not healthy food. That's Brad Bloom. Okay. And he said, and they said, what do you think about being number two? Because McDonald's was always number one. 
And he goes, oh, I love it. He said, every food crisis out there and everything bad for you, they blame it on McDonald's and we get to do whatever we want. And I thought that was funny. They could do it because he was talking about, I don't know at the time, what like a double Whopper, how many calories, how much fat was in it. It could kill oh, yeah. you. Yeah. And he said, you know, I would love to make it healthy, but they won't eat it. So yeah. if you're trying to make money, yeah. Do it the way you have to. But he said everything bad in fast foods blamed on McDonald's and we just kind of fly under the radar. There's a picture of me and, and uh, Brad Bloom um, in a, in, it went into like USA Today and all these other publications. So I, I've been, you know, on on the newspaper end of the whole thing. And and uh, so uh, it's a picture of me standing there with Brad Bloom. I've got the hamburger with with the bun. And he has the hamburger with the lettuce wrapped around it because it was the low carb phase that was going uh, through. So, so uh, fortunately enough, I'm the one pointing at the bun because uh, the bakers that I was working with uh, for us got a little upset with that picture. <laughs> I always thought that Burger King was the best one for anybody who wanted to think about trying to be keto or at least low carb because their hamburgers were only ones the only ones I knew that were good without a bun. And I can't remember what they used to call it. If you went through the, the, you know, the, the line and you asked for it a certain way, they knew that meant no bun. I don't know if you asked for the low carb version or whatever, but they put it in a container with everything except the bun and handed you a knife and a fork. And other fast food restaurants would try to give it to you wrapped in their paper, you know, and they were not being kind to you at all about <laughs> not wanting a bun. But Burger King put it in a plastic container with it, like the salad container. Yeah. And you, you could ask for the, the double Whopper. No, I would say double Whopper, no cheese, extra lettuce, and basically add a hamburger salad. And it was wonderful. You know, so Burger King was one of those. So you left Burger King and you went to Interstate Brands. I don't think anybody knows what that is unless they're in the food industry. So tell us about Interstate Brands. So Interstate Brands um, is a, well, it used to be the largest baking company in the United States. And uh, so they had Wonder Bread and Hostess and Dolly Madison. So those were some of the, the big, big uh, brand labels that were underneath that uh, under IBC. So Airshade Brands was um, actually the um, recruiter who who kept on contact me, and I kept on kind of ignoring him. And he said, "You need to talk, talk to me." And I said, "All right, I'll I'll talk to you." And because uh, uh, I really didn't want to leave Miami, and I was I was enjoying it there. Uh, mm -hmm. He said, "Well, I'm not the one actually is requesting you. It's actually who's going to be your future boss." Uh, Teresa Cogswell, she keeps on harping about you. You need to come work for her. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> and she's the, she was the VP of R and D uh, regulatory and um, uh, uh, consumer affairs. And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll entertain the thought. So I, I talked with her uh, for a bit. Well, how did you know her? How did she know you? When I worked at AIB and, and she's kind of followed my, my track a little bit. And, and so, um, uh, I knew her kind of at AID when she was on the advisory board there. And so I kind of knew her. I didn't know her real well, but, but uh, she kind of kept track of where I was at. And uh, so she had an opportunity for, for me as a director of. of uh, Sounds like she was stalking you. <laughs> she was. She was. 
You had a stalker. She goes, I've been tracking you. <laughs> that was, that was, uh, uh, during the interviewing process. And, and, uh, with, uh, when she and I went to lunch, she goes, I've been tracking you. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> but anyway, they came Hello, back. But, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I just love her. You know, she's, she laughs a lot and, and we just kind of made fun of the whole thing. But, um, so she and I, uh, uh, talked and and I said okay, I'm I'm willing to you know entertain the thought of coming out and interviewing with you and then it takes me back to closer to family here in Kansas City so I thought well okay I can I can you know entertain the thought so um, and she goes well understand that that uh, we're under bankruptcy but you know, you know we'll we'll uh, we'll make the deal okay for you and and hopefully we can get ourselves out of bankruptcy it's like okay that's a little iffy but. I'm willing to That's scary. take it. So yeah, so I'm willing to take it and, and see what happens here. So, um, so I interviewed. Uh, they liked me, and so I got the position as as a director of uh, of uh, bread and rolls. So in R and D. So now, when you left Burger King, what was your position? I was manager of menu uh, management for them. I focused okay. a lot of my efforts were were on bakery, but also. I worked on uh, breakfast concepts or breakfast category itself, and then also on desserts. So before I was there, they didn't have much in dessert uh, land itself. So mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the frozen pie was pretty much it uh, that they had. So those Hershey pies and other, other pies that they had there, that was pretty much it. That's all they had. So I talked them into going to soft serve. And using their current mix uh, for that they were using for uh, the shakes, they said if we buy a smaller machine, then you can actually get into soft serve. So I'm bringing back my my Dairy Queen days there. <laughs> so I showed you them are. how to get. In. So I showed them how to get into soft serve, and and uh, so uh, we talked the um, the franchisees into it, and I they're doing still doing real well with uh, soft serve. So what did what did Burger King say when you told me you were willing to leave? weren't real happy, but they understood, and so um, I I uh, kind of left the door open that if you know if something should happen, then you know, maybe I could get back. Well, that was nice. That was nice. They were fine with that. It was iffy going into IBC, you know, knowing that they were in bankruptcy and things were just kind of um, you know on edge there, uh, but you know. I was able to accomplish a lot there in, in the bread category. And then um, the director of sweet goods actually left. So I took over that whole thing. Uh, so I, I had, I was director over all that uh, R and D uh, and learned quite a bit from, from the, the people. Uh, and uh, we actually launched out some really good products uh, in the whole scheme of things. And then uh, Teresa left. And so then that kind of thrust me into, uh, being the VP then, you know, so I was the interim VP for a bit uh, with IBC. Whatever happened to the bankruptcy? Uh, they went bankrupt. <laughs> I, had, I had already left. And um, so I think it was just uh, about a year later, they uh, they all, they just declared bankruptcy and that was it. So they just kind of like closed up everything and that was it. So. so did you work on the Hostess brand? I worked on Hostess and I worked on Wonder Bread and and um, they, we had another one that was, uh, uh, what was it, Nature's, that one, uh, Nature's Pride, that's what it was, Nature's Pride. So we actually developed a, a uh, counterpart to, to the Nature's Own. This, this little 
thing with Hostess was one of those things that made me laugh about what people, the general public, do not understand about the food industry. Mm-hmm. So they announced that, that Hostess is out of business and everybody goes crazy. Where are they going to get their Twinkies? Where are they going to get their Hostess? And do you remember they were selling them on eBay for like oh, $1,000 for a box yeah. of Twinkies? Yeah. And I'm yeah. just sitting back and I keep telling everybody, even though I don't eat Twinkies, don't worry about it. This is just a brand. Somebody else is going to buy it. They're going to pick it up. It might take a month. It might take six months. But it's not as if Twinkie and Hostess is going to ever, you know, leave the earth. And I was laughing. I was telling people, do not buy a Twinkie off of eBay for $1,000. We know they have a shelf life of about 10 years. But still, do not buy a Twinkie off of eBay. And then... I don't how many months I don't even know how many months it was before they were back up and you know running again. It's like five or six. But was that the most hilarious thing you ever saw? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I saw some hilarious stuff on the inside of of uh, while I was there, and and uh, so when I was in our MVP, uh, you know, the whole thing with the the trans fats, and so everybody mm-hmm. had to lower their trans fats down, and in the Walmart and others were saying, "Hey, you have to lower the trans fat on all your products." And so that that was quite a you know run through trying to get everything switched over, and uh, and it just took a very coordinated effort to get that done. And uh, kind of a funny story out of that whole thing is that um, the VP of Ops actually came into my office and goes, um, "I need you to sign this paper." And I was like, "Okay." I said, what is it? And he goes, well, we want to change out the, the frying fat for the donuts I, in the, and the uh, Madison gems. I said, um, did you do any testing on this? Well, no, we just need to change it. And I was like, you need to do the, the testing on it, make sure that, you know, it doesn't fail. Because I said, you know, donuts and, and the gems are pretty much our crown jewels here. You know, that's what's paying to keep the lights on. <laughs> so, yeah. I said you cannot uh, you cannot disrupt that that piece by just switching out uh, frying fats, and so he started screaming at me in at the top of his lungs, and and I'm the spit's coming at my at me. <laughs> that's how hey, that's how that angry. is how angry he was, really was. He goes, I'm going to go talk to your boss, and I said, go for it. <laughs> so so I called up my boss at that time, and I said, Rich. Rich is coming up to, to talk to you, you know, and he goes, Oh no, I can hear him. And I said, this is what it's all about. <laughs> and I said, he wants me to sign this paper and, you know, for, uh, uh, changing out the frying fat. And I told him, you know, we need to do proper testing, all this stuff because I'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. So in the end, um, we went ahead and tested out three different frying fats. So the one that, that the ops people actually picked out failed the consumer testing over shelf lifetime and uh, two others that we selected actually made it through. And one of them that uh, did the best actually uh, didn't uh, they, the company uh, who was selling it to us, the, the frame vet uh, said, well, we can't supply you with everything. So we also had the ultimate supplier then that could actually do it for us. And so usually when I do testing for, Products I always try it and I, I do three tests because I know that one of them may have a chance of failing, 
And I still want some options there. So uh, I was testing threes. I think trans fats, one of those things that people talk about, like, oh, this doesn't have any trans fats. And I don't think people know what trans fats are or why we shouldn't have them and why we have them to begin with, you know? So go, go through some trans fats. Like, why did we get rid of them? And what did you replace them with? Uh, they've been found to clog, clog up our arteries, <laughs> which is not good. Uh, so they were found to clog up our arteries, and that was the main thing. So um, the um, lowering the trans fat content will actually allow you to eat the, the food without it causing the, the blockages in your heart and in other places uh, throughout your body. So that's really what it kind of came down to. So what is a trans fat? Is like lard a trans fat, or like what's what has trans fats? All fats have some bit of trans fat to them but at lower levels. So the natural ones have a little bit of it in there, but it is not completely, um, it, it, you know, they're at such a low level, it really doesn't register that well. Uh, but there are some fats that were hydrogenated, you know, partially hydrogenated actually, um, and that have a higher amount of trans fats in them. So, you know, frying oils, like for fridge fries and for uh, sweet goods and things like that, which we all just love, and uh, so um, those that were fried in partially hydrogenated oil actually had a high, high amount of trans fats in them to keep them flowable, but also uh, still have fry life. So um, it helps with the stability of that frying oil as well. So we're talking about like Crisco. Crisco was high in trans fats. Yes, and it might have been. I'm not sure. The original one was. Was it? Okay. I can't remember. That's what they call it. Hydrogenated oil. That's the name of it. There's fully hydrogenated, which is different from partially hydrogenated. How is that different? Partially hydrogenated is more flowable. Fully hydrogenated is actually solved like Crisco. So I don't think that it was actually, Uh, Crisco was actually, uh, had uh, a very high trans content to it. Okay. You have to explain this to me like I'm four years old. Isn't sure. all oil isn't all oil flowable? Like, why would we have to have part? Isn't so? There's plastic, and then there's flowable oils. So there's the plastic uh, piece is fully hydrogenated, and then regular, you know, unhydro, unhydrogenated oil would be, you know, flowable, and so it would be like your vegetable oils and things like that. When you do kind of a a partial uh, of that, somewhere in between both. Uh, fully hydrogenated and then just regular uh, oil, um, then you get into this area of, of higher trans fats. And it has to do with the esterification of how that happens. And I I, I can't remember all of the, the chemistry behind it. But anyway, um, when you get to the partial, which allows the oil or the, the, the fat to be flowable, it's semi, semi-solid, I guess you call it, uh, it's not fully hydrogenated, which is a solid fat. It's uh, it's a flowable fat, uh, but it has the protections of of a uh, fully hydrogenated uh, fat, but it also has the flowability as well. So, if you went to you said lard doesn't have very many trans fats. All natural fats actually have some degree of trans fats mm-hmm. in them, but they're like I said, they uh, don't really register. So, butter. Uh, oil or uh, lard, some of the other natural fats, you know, from from animal sources, may have 
uh, a certain amount of, of uh, trans fats, but they, you know, and they, they just occur naturally. But when you process the oil to become partially hydrogenated, it, it does um, create a lot of trans. So it's the ice, there's cis, and then there's trans. <laughs> and so trans actually uh, is what causes a lot of the, the blockage in the arteries. The other thing they like to get rid of is saturated fat, right? Saturated fats, you know, lard and butter are high in saturated fats. So they try to get rid of those, though, or they haven't? That's not a concern. They're not great. Uh, so even coconut oil, I think, co- I'm pretty sure coconut oil and some palm fats are, are uh, have uh, a high amount of saturated fats to them. Not great for the heart either, but they're, it's better than the trans fat itself. So trans fat is really, you know, it's bad. So, uh, but uh, saturated is not as bad, but it's still bad for for you. And you have to limit the intake of saturated fats as well. I was in Costa Rica in October and we were driving past, you know, one of those tours, driving past all these palm trees, palm trees, palm trees, in perfect rows, just, and it was what they got from, this is farms for palm oil. And they said something interesting. They said that they manufacture, they grow, manufacture everything in the palm oil and refine it, and they send it out of the country because it's illegal to consume palm oil in Costa Rica. Really? Because it's so bad for you. They said it's just health-wise is the worst thing. So Costa Ricans will not consume palm oil that they ship out of the country. And I said, well, who do you ship it to? If it's so bad, you guys won't eat it. He goes, oh, to the United States. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's, it's all for us. Wait a minute, if it's so bad for us, why are we consuming it? So that and coconut oils or, or coconut co- coconut fats are also, um, you know, so highly saturated as well, but you know, we we still eat them and, and uh, they're they're good. <laughs> <laughs> they make they make great fried products. <laughs> Did your job there end because of the bankruptcy? Uh, I went ahead and and left because things were really getting iffy, and I just really did not want to be there anymore. So uh, after a year and a half, I said, you know, I've I've had enough uh, of the instability, and so uh, my mom, dad were aging. I said, you know, I probably ought to go help my parents. Uh, with the Dairy Queens for a while. And so that's what I did. I worked at, back at the Dairy Queens and took over the business for them and, and the day-to-day operations, all that sort of stuff. Because uh, my parents were aging and, and uh, they really need help. So uh, I helped them out um, you know, with that. And, and uh, finally, uh, I think it was like 2016, I told my mom and dad, I said, you know, I think I really want to go back to corporate life. You spent a lot of years with your parents. How long did you spend doing that for your parents? seven years, maybe seven or eight years. Is that the half-baked innovations? Yeah. Yeah. So I did um, consulting work in, in the meantime. So I did consulting work, uh, had some different things that I, I did with the consulting, uh, worked for some different customers and then uh, worked at the Dairy Queens uh, to help them out too. So Now, did you notice in, in the course of all of this conversation, all the companies you've worked for, did you notice that Hostess was, wasn't it purchased by Smuckers? I, I found that fascinating. Um, it was it was a blast to to see. Well, okay, two two of my paths are coming together, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and it was 
it was just funny to see that happen. And I just loved it. Yeah. Two of the things that you had, you had a hand in and they, they joined together. So the, um, well, so you have a seven, eight year interruption in your corporate career in R and D, but it doesn't hurt your career. Talk about that a little bit. Again, got a call from an old boss of mine and, uh, she said, Hey, um, what are you doing? I, uh, what are you doing now? And I said, well, I'm, uh, just closing up the, the businesses with my parents on the, the Dairy Queens. And she goes, how would you like to come work for me? I said, that'd be great. And so, um, uh, that was with little Caesars. And so, um, moved to Detroit and, uh, did that and, and, uh, um, uh, worked on a lot of different projects. I mean, it was just nonstop. I mean, it was just go, 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 go. And, uh, it was a lot of fun and I really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed, uh, my boss there, uh, Devin Daniel and, and she was great to work with and, and work for. So, um, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun. And, uh, so it was so funny cause I was actually out on a little fishing outing, uh, for a day, a day thing, uh, to get out of the office. And, and so, uh, Dana Tilly and, and Deb took us out to go fishing for, for trout at this pond. And on the way back, I got this call from, from, uh, a person who had worked for me at IBC. And she said, Hey, how would you like to come work, uh, be my boss and come work for, um, uh, for, uh, DuPont Nutrition Biosciences? I said, you know, Sarah, I just, joined here i can't just pick up and leave again and uh so um she said oh i understand and so uh, a couple weeks later i get this call i'm i'm finishing up with a commercial shoot at at for little caesars and i'm driving through the downtown area and uh in in busy traffic and it was cloudy and rainy and, and cold and uh a person who i uh, actually <clears throat> had a lot to deal with, with, uh, uh, from a salesperson, you know, he called me up and said, well, you know, you need to come work for us. And I said, Eddie, I've, I've already told Sarah. And he goes, I know I put her up to it. <laughs> he says, you need to come work for us. I said, oh, Eddie, you know, I'd love to, but you know, unfortunately I, I just started here and I really need to give it, you know, some time here. And, and uh, he goes, well, I'm going to put you on with your new boss. And so he hands the phone over to, uh, Kathy Miller and he goes, um, here's your new boss. <laughs> so I'm talking with her and, and I said, hi, Kathy, how are you doing? And so we went through the conversation. She goes, I think we need to bring you in for an interview. And I said, okay, that's fine. We'll, we'll just, let's try it out and see. And so I went in and interviewed and, and, uh, they liked what they saw and, and, uh, you know, what I was able to offer and, and, uh, how I, you know, uh, can assemble a team. And so anyway, uh, got hired with, with, uh, uh, DuPont Nutrition Biosciences. So how long were you at Little Caesars? Only a year. <laughs> we, have to stop, we have to stop for a second. Because as a recruiter, I will go to companies and, I, and they will say to me, that person, that person has been out of the industry for two years. That person has been gone for a year. That person, oh, four years. And I'm like, they didn't forget what they were doing. They, they, can, they can do that. And they will constantly nitpick about oh we can't hire that person because they've been gone a year you were gone eight almost nine years and you had two companies fighting over you a lot of that has to do with your reputation within the industry a b it's it's keeping your networks continually developing and that's that's the really important piece here 
keep your networks running, you know, because you never know when your next opportunity is going to come up and, and, and be really the right opportunity for you. So uh, that's my my point out to everybody who will be listening to this is, you know, keep your networks running. You know, you may step aside for a bit you know, for maybe a longer time. Uh, but, you know, people always remember you if you if you achieved well within the company and you did a lot of what they were looking for. You build this reputation and and that's also the, the other piece is the reputation piece, because they will they will actually seek you out and try to find you again to, you know, come work for another company. So I think too many people work with their head down and stay in their lane and don't look up. They don't, they don't look at anyone around. And I think the common thread through this whole thing is you don't stay in your lane and you're constantly looking for ways to help people and get things done for them. Problem solve. Be willing to uh, challenge the status quo or just be willing to challenge and, and be willing to be challenged as well. Because I think that that is another key point here is that you know, you can't just, like you said, just, you know, stay there with your head down and not be in challenge. You need to go out and, and spread out a little bit, challenge yourself and, and be, you know, a, a person who can, uh, can convey outward, hey, I think I have a great idea and I, this is how I want to do it. And, uh, and people will listen. You've got to, you know, you've got the right idea and, and you're willing to put your, efforts behind it and your reputation and things, they'll, they'll go with it. Another thing you've mentioned at all these companies, and I think you've had more opportunity to do this than anybody I've ever talked to, these commercial shoots. I think you're throwing this around like commercial shoot, and I, I don't think people understand what's involved and what your part as a food scientist is in doing commercial shoots. So uh, they are very involved. Um, I love doing them. There's a lot of prep work that you have to do. Um, you have to have kind of a creativeness about you for it. Uh, uh, it's not, you know, limiting, but it is, it's, um, something you really should have a little bit of a creative view and an eye for, for things. Um, and so when I was working with the photographers and also the directors for these commercial shoots, I'd always say, well, let me take a look, uh, you know, from behind the camera so I can see what everything looks like. And, and I can give you an assessment about whether this actually still meets the specifications of what you look for in, in that product and what it's going to deliver for that, that product for the consumer. And so um, I got to work with some really great uh, uh, directors, and actually one of them uh, was the original um, uh, uh, director for Alien, the movie Alien. <laughs> And his name is Derek Van Flint, I think, or Lint. Van Lint? Van Lint? Van Flint. Anyway, he was, he was great to work with. Uh, he was uh, the director of photography uh, for that film. And uh, I, I got to ask him some questions about, you know, what was it like to work with Sigourney Weaver? Or what was it like to, you know, work with a lot of these different actors and actresses? And, and uh, so it was, it was a blast just to kind of connect with him a little bit. And, uh, you know, uh, he'd let me, uh, look at the, you know, behind the camera and, and view how everything looked. And, and he said, he pointed out some things that, that I had not seen before as well. And, and it was, I, I learned a lot from, from the, the commercial shoots and, and the photography shoots as well. So do you remember which one he was doing? It was in, uh, the Donatos. 
So that uh, was okay. one of the Donatas commercials that we were running. Uh, so uh, it was being shot up in Canada, there in Toronto, just uh, oh, okay. the north, north and east of, of uh, Toronto. And uh, that was so much fun. I, I, I learned so much from that and, and uh, working with uh, the uh, food stylists. So you have to really be able to work with the food stylists and you have to work with the, the director as well and uh, the props props person to get everything just correct to uh, in, in, in the right timing order in order to get that shoot done immediately. So it's, it is uh, quite a coordination between uh, the kitchen to, you know, getting the food out to the stage and having it look good still. <laughs> is all the food in the commercials real? It's all real. Cause I know that some of the, still pictures they don't have to naturally be completely real so ice cream will actually be whipped up uh crisco <laughs> and it films out looking like ice cream because it will melt under the hot lights and yeah. all that kind of thing yeah so and i know that in a real film commercial if someone's eating something it better be real because that would be I wouldn't eat Crisco ice cream on. I guess they get paid a lot. They might. So what's the difference between a food stylist and a food scientist on a commercial shoot? So a food stylist actually knows a lot about how to style the product and, and all the little uh, little things you have to do to make the like the cheese pull and the pizza, uh, how to make that work, and uh, or how to um, take a raw turkey that's still raw you, you partially bake it or cook it, and then it's still raw inside, and then you slice it, and then you know flap that that nice looking, what's supposed to be juicy looking, it's still raw. <laughs> flip it out, you know, uh, flap it out, and then you steam it, so it will actually look like it's juicy and and uh, you know fully cooked, and and that's yeah. how you you do these different things. So there's these these little tricks that you have to kind of understand how these things work. Uh, the cheese poles were really the most difficult piece because um, doing a cheese pole and have it, have it work with uh, the cheeses that you're working with in your restaurant. Don't pull like they do on the commercials, <laughs> but you what have do to, they do? you have to use a mixture of other cheeses and you, you log it together into a melted piece, kind of stuff it in there. And then you in, into what the slice is, and then you have to heat it up uh, from underneath and then steam it. And then you can do uh, the camera and then you have somebody pulling the whole thing out. And it has to have that nice stretch with the strands of, of cheese there. So there is quite, there is quite, a, it's, it's quite fascinating to see the whole thing. A, B, it's, there's quite a, a, a way of being able to, a process to make that actually happen. And, and, uh, Hopefully you're successful with it. Sometimes you're not, <laughs> but you have about twenty. You have about twenty pizzas right behind it that you can actually, you know, uh, do each take. You know, and so it's, you know, if there's twenty takes. There's twenty pizzas that you just run through. They do a lot of editing, so they might. They, the commercial might be perfect, except the cheese didn't pull right. So they'll edit in a good cheese pull for the for the commercial. All this to do a thirty second commercial. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And and how long does it take to do a commercial? How many days are you there? Uh, so 
that took about a week to do. So I was there in uh, Toronto for about a week. Um, some of my commercial shoots in New York City were about a week long. Um, and when I was at Pizza Hut, I was between commercial shoots in New York City and out in L.A. at the the, the shooting studio at, in Pizza Hut had its own shooting studio out in L.A. as well. So I was traveling back and forth across the country. You know, uh, I'd be in New York City from Monday through Wednesday and then over in L.A. from uh, Wednesday evening into Friday, Saturday in in the afternoon, you know, running uh, commercial and photography shoots. So, yeah. So after all these pizzas, are you tired of pizza yet? No. Love pizza. No? <laughs> yeah, I make my own. What's your favorite What's your favorite kind of pizza? Cheese. I'm, I'm big cheese, cheese pizza? Fan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thin or thick crust? Uh, I like both. I, I make, so I'll, I'll uh, hand slap out a thick crust for myself. Uh, and it looks like a New York style pizza. So the big pizzas like this with the bulbous edge and, and the thinner uh, center. So, and I, I hand slap out, you make my own dough and then I hand slap it all out, sauce it all up, cheese it, throw it in the oven with the, you know, I put spices all over it and then throw it in the oven and bake it off and voila, there you go. So you like the New York style over the Chicago style. Yeah. Yeah. And if you had, to, if someone's at your house and they want something on the pizza, you're okay with that? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've made it with pepperoni and other, you know, sausage and other things on there too. So sometimes I get really creative with, with uh, like vegetables and other things. And I do these flatbreads that are really, really extravagant looking. So, uh, and put different, you know, sauce drizzles or, or uh, uh, reduced balsamic uh, vinegar drizzle over top and, and uh, do some fun stuff like that. All right. Have you ever made a pierogi pizza? I have not. Now, you know what a pierogi is, right? I do know what a pierogi is. Okay. So a pierogi pizza is, this would go well on a par-baked crust. You saute onions in, in you know, butter, salt and pepper. So you put, you might put a little butter or olive oil in the crust, but you spread mashed potatoes. Like it. Like it. Okay. So you put your mashed, mashed, yeah, put your mashed potatoes on there like you would tomato sauce, except a little thicker. And then you put all the onions with the with the butter and the salt and pepper and everything on top of that. And then to make it a pizza, which pierogies don't have cheese, but you got to make, I mean, they do, but they don't have it like, you know, so you, you can put cheddar on there if you want, but most people put a mozzarella, maybe a cheddar blend, and you put that on there and you bake it like a pizza. And it is a pierogi and it is 100% carbs. <laughs> That sounds wonderful. Why has that gone not, not gone national? That was a big deal in some of the restaurants in Ohio. Even though pierogies are big in Pittsburgh, Ohio had all the pierogi pizzas. Oh, interesting. So you just need mashed potatoes, the onions, and the cheese. And it and like I said, it, you don't just put cheddar cheese. I, I've had them a couple with all cheddar. That's just the wrong texture. If you do the a blend between mozzarella and and cheddar, it's much better. Gonna have to make one of these. I've done sliced uh, potato in that I uh, par parboiled and then uh, put it on the pizza with with uh, uh, rosemary and and shallots, you know, uh, shaved out uh, shallots and all that. Uh, put that on there and and uh, oh, love it. Yeah, that's too white collar. This is very <laughs> blue collar. <laughs> I'm good with blue collar as well. So, all right, let's pick up where we left off. So, you left Little Caesars and went to Dupont, and tell us about Dupont because 
everybody thinks DuPont's a chemical company. No one really knew what DuPont was all about and that they had uh, a nutrition biosciences division. So uh, basically, uh, it was uh, DuPont had purchased um, what was actually uh, Danisco. So Danisco, uh, back, in, back in the day, Gridstead, Danisco, uh, they uh, had purchased uh, Soleil, uh, so the soybean manufacturing. And before that, it was PTI. Before that, it was Protein Technologies. Yeah, yeah. So they purchased uh, Soleil. Uh, I think right before that, though, they purchased um, uh, Genencore. So Genencore was actually the uh, enzymes. So uh, running like uh, the enzymes that go into soaps and things like that, but they also made food enzymes as well. So um, then a little bit longer out than or in than uh, uh then DuPont actually acquired uh, Danisco. And so then we all became part of the, the DuPont Nutrition Biosciences area. And so um, then uh, after that, then we had actually purchased uh, FMC. And uh, then we merged with, with Dow. And so uh, the idea was to bring all the food ingredients together. So the cellulosics and in alginates and all these other uh, 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 gums and hydrocolloids, everything came over to DuPont Nutrition Biosciences and also from Dow into that. And then it was all broken back up again. And so the the uh, all the farming uh, uh, pesticides and all that sort of stuff, all that stuff went to uh, Corteva. So Corteva was uh, broken up off of that. And so all, all the farming uh, uh, agricultural stuff uh, then uh, it left Dow DuPont together, and then we broke the two of those apart, and then then uh, we were kind of reshuffled around a little bit, and then but we were still part of DuPont Nutrition Biosciences, and then uh, about three years ago, then we did a reverse Morse Trust uh, merger with, with uh, IFF, so International Flavors and Fragrances, and so DuPont Nutrition Biosciences and IFF came together uh, to the new IFF. And so we dropped the DuPont Nutrition Biosciences name and, and became IFF. Here you are, bakery guy, shows up at DuPont. What are you working on? Uh, so I'm working on uh, enzymes. And uh, so uh, enzymes, emulsifiers, hydrocloids, so all these different ingredients that, that are in our portfolio and uh, working with our customers to uh, create better uh, enzymes and emulsifiers and hydrocolloids for them uh, to be able to utilize in their own operation. So um, we were we are number two in in uh, the enzymes. So uh, we actually own all of our own backbones, enzyme backbones, and then we can manipulate those enzyme backbones to express what we're looking for, whether it be like in strengthening or softening or building up starches or whatever it may be that we're, we're interested in doing. For whatever industry that we're working in, so in mine is in bakery, but we also have dairy, we have uh, culinary, uh, we have pet food. So there's all these different sub or all these different application areas that we we uh, fall in into with uh, the different uh, ingredients that we have in our portfolio. Okay. So so uh, we actually, uh, like I said, we were vertically integrated with with enzymes, and so I do a lot of my working enzymes right now. Uh, so, um, we've developed some new molecules that, that actually help with strengthening and they really are the top notch 
in the industry right now. So uh, we take those enzyme molecules, we blend them together in, in my lab, and, and we do a lot of uh, discovery, but then we also uh, run a lot of uh, designs of experimentation on those uh, to create the most optimum blend for, for strengthening, utilizing all the different uh, strengthening enzymes and oxidative enzymes, as well as dough conditioning enzymes and even softening enzymes. So we, we create these uh, optimized blends based off of uh, designs of experimentation. And then uh, I've uh, taken them one step further on testing, and so we do um, called design uh, test of failure. And so we can understand how, how will this look when we fail it in, in, in a uh, bread or cake or whatever it may be in our application work. Uh, we have to understand that because then when – when a, a company, one of uh, our customers actually calls and says, hey, we're experiencing this, we've already experienced it in the lab. And so we can see what that looks like and how to troubleshoot for that. And then we can get a, a immediate answer back to them. Okay, so this is the first time in your career that you're really in an ingredient company. You're not yeah. doing finished products. Yeah. So we don't have any commercial shoots here. We're not doing anything <laughs> fun like that. So... You kind of rattled off a few of the ingredients that they that you work with. Just just for people who have no idea what you're talking about, maybe someone new in the industry or something like that. Talk about what an enzyme is, what a hydrocolloid is, and I can't remember the other one that you mentioned. Emulsifier. Emulsifier. So go ahead and talk about like just briefly what they do and where we use them. So uh, with the enzymes, it's uh, real simple. So they're they will uh, take a substrate that we're interested in. So it may be a lipid that if we want to convert it over to making a strengthener that you wouldn't have to use like datum or, or some sort of uh, emulsifier. You can actually create the same uh, molecules in situ in, inside like a bread dough. So uh, we're trying to create datum, uh, datum-like molecules in situ in, in a uh, bread dough uh, so that we won't have to use like uh, datum and, and monos and things like that. We can just use enzymes. And so you can remove datum and monos off the label. Uh, but we're taking those uh, those different uh, enzymes that are strengtheners and are lipases, and we are converting the lipids that are natural in not only in the formulation, but also in the flour itself, and converting those over to strengthening uh, uh, strengthener uh, molecules. And uh, okay. so uh, that's what enzymes do. And we can also soften. So we can actually uh, break down starch in, in, a, uh, in the uh, product to help extend shelf life. So we can actually greatly extend shelf life. If you don't have the, the softening enzymes in there, you probably would get a shelf life about five to maybe if you're pushing it about 10 days. But we can go out to 30, 35 plus days now with, with uh, uh, softening enzymes and give uh, the manufacturers a much wider uh, range of being able to sell that product and reducing the amount of waste that's going out into the world. So okay. uh, that's, that's what enzymes do. Uh, with emulsifiers, uh, so a lot of like cakes and things like that will require uh, emulsifiers because uh, there's different types of emulsifiers. There's an alpha tending emulsifier that actually gives you that aeration whipping ability uh, for cakes. Um, uh, we have other uh, types of emulsifiers like datums and, and SSL 
that help reduce the surface tension between uh, oil and fat, and that's really good because you need to be able to emulsify that uh, oil and fat together to make smaller droplets of oil or smaller droplets of water uh, to help uh, improve the texture and quality of that product. Um, there are other, uh, like softening emulsifiers, like monos, uh, that uh, will help uh, uh, keep the softness of that product initially uh, so that you get uh, the best out of that product in lowering the, the firming curve uh, for like a uh, of a bread, say, you know, and you're eating a sliced bread, it lowers that, that firming curve so you can actually eat it uh, and, and have it be nice and soft in the initial bite then. Uh, hydrocolloids uh, work from a different point of view. We're trying to manage moisture and, and do moisture control. So uh, breads love to, because they, they are only, you know, uh, held together by this little bag that has a little twist tie on the, the one end of it. Um, and a lot of moisture uh, migrates from that, that product uh, from breads uh, out outward. And the, the bags are just really a, a dust ruffle on, on that holds that whole thing together. <laughs> so there isn't a whole lot that's really protecting other than, you know, from uh, particulate of, of uh, dust and things like that. It's really just, you know, uh, there to hold that, that package together. So, uh, you have to be able to manage that moisture inside to extend out the shelf life as well of that bread because it's going to start drying out. In a, you know, as soon as uh, you get it out, that that package is going to start drying out, you know, fairly rapidly. So uh, we use hydrocolloids in in that, but we also use some cakes to help maintain moistness and viscosity of the batter uh, for the the cake to really perform well in in uh, the marketplace. Which have you enjoyed more, working at Finished Good Company where you can look and say, I made that pizza, I made that hamburger bun, or are you having more fun now trying to play with all these ingredients? I miss some of the end product uh, development, so menu management, I miss some of that. Um, it's a very, very high-paced uh, type of environment, not, that, not to say that it isn't here in, in the ingredient world. Uh, but I'm learning a lot more. I've learned a lot more about ingredients and how they function within uh, bakery products. And I can become more um, creative with that. And when you look at our portfolio across the board, uh, you know, not only the, by the ingredients I've just talked about, which is enzymes, emulsifiers, hydrocolloids, we have all these other things that we work with, like flavors. We have inclusions uh, that uh, are part of the portfolio. Uh, which are these little, uh, uh, almost like, um, what are those uh, roll-out mats of, of fruit, the fruit roll-ups. So they, yeah, they're, they're fruit roll-ups. Yeah, so uh, we make little bits out of that, uh, fruit bits, and it's actually 100% fruit. And so we can make uh, inclusions that, that uh, have real fruit in them, and, uh, and that's really fun to work with. Uh, the flavors, of course, and then uh, we have another one that's called Powder Pure, and so uh, in, in the powder pure, we actually have the Ifa-Dry uh, system. It's a patented technology. Uh, we can take uh, ugly-looking fruit, and we do that. So we take ugly-looking fruit that doesn't make it to the, the marketplace, but we can use it, dry it down really, really fast. So within, uh, within a minute, we can dry all that uh, fruit down and then uh, powderize it, and it can be utilized in, in a uh, baker product or whatever it may be. Uh, but it keeps all of its nutritional content to it, and it keeps its color. It keeps all the different aspects of, of that, uh, what that fruit or vegetable 
was before, it, it still has that in there. And so you can be really creative with a whole lot of a uh, wider range of that, that portfolio that, that we never had before when we were just DuPont Nutrition Biosciences. Do you get to get to a finished product with some customers? Do you get do you get to walk it all the way to the end? Yep. So we do end-to-end um, uh, design. So uh, we work with the customers uh, at the very beginning of the design and then all the way through to the very end. And, and we will actually help them out, out in their own manufacturing facilities to help achieve that, that same quality of what we uh, were trying to achieve from the, the beginning part of the design work. Well, without giving any secrets away, can you tell us a, like, an example of some products that you may have worked on? The largest uh, bakery company in, in the world uh, actually came to us and uh, knew that we were really, really good in, in uh, our enzymes. And so we helped them with design a, an enzyme blend uh, for some of their products in you know, you'll you see them out there in, in your territory because they, they deliver out to that way as well. Um, but uh, they're going to more of a clean label. So uh, able to help design that clean label uh, by removing the datums and monos, all that other stuff out of it so that they can actually clean up the label and then, then uh, utilize that in their process. So um, we can help improve that process a little bit more and uh, actually improves the end product and, and it uh, actually looks better than, than what they had before. So that's one. Um, but we've worked on some of like the cakes and things like that where uh, we'll work with a cake manufacturer and uh, uh, help them with design or redesign their, their cake uh, mixes to go uh, back out to the marketplace. And in one particular case, actually, they, they brought their formulation and I said, well, you're used a. You're using the wrong flour. B. You know, there's there's some other things that that are in your formulation that probably need to be changed out because they're old technologies that we have new technologies to replace that will probably be more cost effective. And uh, there's some other things we can do with the, the uh, formulation to make it uh, a little bit better for for processing at at a customer you know consumer's uh, kitchen. And so. Uh, we reworked uh, some of those formulations uh, in the cake mix formulations, and and they're they're successful now. So, which has been really really helpful. And they still tasted the same as what their old product tasted like, and performed the same way. They actually performed better, and they they tasted better because we were able to improve not only on the flavor but also on the the ingredient side of things. Is this helpful when IFF bought it, so you had access to all these flavors and everything? Yeah. Yeah, that was very helpful. So the playground just got huge. <laughs> I call it the playground. So that's that's what I call my lab is the playground. So what I've noticed, and I don't know, maybe I'm I've other people have said the same thing. When IFF buys somebody, merges with somebody, however you want to use that terminology, they always remove the other company's name. So they remove the history. So if you're looking for an old formulation and it says that it was an Otten flavor, if you don't know your history, you don't know that's IFF now. Yeah, actually taste point. And they just take the name away and they've done it with everybody. So I didn't, I wasn't, DuPont wasn't on my radar because I worked with them when they were PTI, when they were Soleil. When they went to DuPont, and, and Denisco, I did a little bit of work, but I hadn't been touched them in a long time. So I remember right now sitting here going, yeah, IFF bought them, but 
I didn't realize that DuPont's just gone. Like you don't have, it's not there. Yeah. DuPont nutrition biosciences is, is gone. Yeah. Um, just gone. But, but our Danisco name still is around. So oh, is the, it? the okay. Danisco sub brands, Danisco, uh, Grinstead, some of these sub brands that, uh, were legacy from a long time ago are still there in even Soleil. So you'll see the Soleil name on, on a ingredient, but you also see uh, IFF on there too. So Yeah. So you throw away all your DuPont nutritional um, t-shirts and. Yeah, the logo is gone. So a lot of that stuff went to uh, Goodwill. <laughs> what words of wisdom would you have to somebody who, you know, maybe has struggled with uh, some downsizing and has to go other places, has several jobs in their background? I mean, I just don't think it's as negative as some people think about it because you wouldn't have all the knowledge you have today if you hadn't been to all these places. Right, right. So um, don't think about the negative. You know, uh, the there is a shining light out there for you. And uh, as long as you've been able to build up a really good reputation and you have uh, a good networking uh group that you uh, work with, you utilize uh, LinkedIn because, you know, you can say I'm out looking, you know, there there's recruiters, there's uh, other companies that are looking for your talent and you can't just say, well, this is the end uh, because that's really not the the case. The the food science industry is, you know, there's so few of the food scientists right now. You can go out and choose whatever you want. And, and it's there. And uh, you have to be open because, you know, what you may have thought that this is what you wanted to do, it may not be uh, the, the course direction of your career to work with. Um, you may have to uh, kind of expand your, your, uh, your challenge with what you're doing and, and go into a new direction within food science. And, and uh, I, I encourage... Um, young people to not get discouraged if they get downsized out. It's not the end of the world. There may be new opportunities that you hadn't really thought about that you can go explore and be part of that and maybe learn something else new. Have, have you ever had an employer or an interviewer say you've been job hopping and that's a negative? Actually, there there was one uh, that, that said that. And I, I can't remember which one it was. They said, well, you've been job hopping. And it's like, well, I don't call that a negative. I call that a positive because I bring all this vast knowledge with me now. And, and uh, you know, it's very diverse and I can help you solve problems much, much better as mm-hmm. as a job hopper. And because uh, you learn so much from each one of the experiences. And, uh, you know, every every different situation uh, has had different problems to solve. And learning from those uh, those problems and how to solve them, um, it, it's really a lot of fun. I, I look at it yeah. more from the point of view, it's a blast to work in. And, and you have uh, new situations that, that may arise uh, that uh, daily that you've never thought about before. And how do you solve it through that? You know, and make it interesting for yourselves. The only thing I don't have a comment back for is that they say to me as a recruiter, they'll say, yeah, but what if we fall in love with him and he's doing so wonderful here 
and he wants to leave and he's only been here three, four, five, or he or she. He's only been here three, four, five years. And I'm like, I, I mean, my only comeback to that has ever been, well, if you keep them challenged, they'll stay. Yeah. But, but they're so worried. I, I always tell them, don't worry about that. Wouldn't you rather have three, four years really good time with this person mm-hmm. than to have never hired them? Yeah. But they kind of get in their head that if they can't have them for 10 or 15 years, it's not worth hiring the person. Yeah. And I, I, I'd have to challenge that because I think that, um, you know, they're short-sighting themselves, A, on technical know-how uh, in, uh, you know, what can be brought to the table from that person, uh, giving them, you know, new opportunities, challenge them. Uh, you know, I think there's, um, I think, you know, sometimes uh, the HR people have a very, very narrow focus on things and they can't see outside the, the box uh, enough to, to say, I'm willing to take the risk and I'm willing to, you know, uh, say, you know, in three to four years, if you're still not challenged enough, then, then maybe you should go ahead and go uh, or, you know, make, make the culture. Maybe you need to make a cultural shift within your, your organization to make it more challenging for your, your people. Because, you know, if they're not challenged enough, they may actually they may go out in droves. And, and that's not always good for a company either. Uh, yeah. So, you know, they the culture has to uh, be within an organization, too. And, you know, it starts at the, the very top of, of getting people to be challenged and, and enjoying what they do. And in uh, a free collaboration type of culture is really important. In, in these organizations, especially when you get into R&D, you really have to have this uh, collaborative efforts, you know, network uh, within, within inside the organization because if you don't have that, then you're not going to create anything other yeah. than a bunch of dismay. <laughs> yeah, but I think that, I think the one thing I've noticed through this conversation is that you have a lot of good memories. Yeah. I mean, this has been a lot of fun stories, fun people you have mentioned more people than most people, you know, they try to keep everybody's name out and you've mentioned all your friends and all these people you've networked with. And I think that, I think that's fabulous. And obviously you've been there seven years now. So it sounds like you found something that fits your groove right now that you want to keep doing. Yeah. I really enjoy what I'm doing. Um, I've been challenged all the time, you know, um, you know, from a professional point of view, but also uh, from uh, you know, what I do out in the lab and how I'm, uh, helping and teaching uh, others how to do these things uh, better as well. So uh, it is. It has a lot of great challenges to it, and it's fun. And, and you've had a chance to settle down. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> stay yes. in one Finally. place. Finally. So, and and you know the the organization here actually values values what I do, and and they value everything um, that I bring to the table, and uh, I think that's really important because they, they recognize what I can bring and, and they value that. And, and they've told me that before. And I think that's a wonderful, uh, wonderful thing to have um, in your, in for your, not only your soul, but your whole psyche as well. So it, it really lifts you up. Yeah. Well, I think I told you when we talked first that one of the things I like to do is having these podcasts is that young people who never thought about the food science as an option 
might get some insight from, you know, hearing from people like you. And I know you're very involved in um, K-State University. Mm-hmm. So talk about that a little bit before we, before we close. So uh, once a year, I actually get to teach. Uh, so I, I get to teach uh, the bakery science uh, intercession course. And so uh, I get to work with students and, and take them through uh, the bakery uh, functions of greens and bakery and more specialized or specific towards like emulsifiers and enzymes. So those are things that have, are a little bit tougher subjects to try to cover during the, the year. Uh, I can actually do a deep dive with them and, and help them understand how these things work real well. Um, so we go through that and then we go through the baking process itself because a lot of them may have not been in a bakery situation. Some of them have, some of them uh, did their internships, uh, but some of them may have not been in, in an internship yet. And uh, so they don't really have an understanding for how the bakery process goes. Uh, then we take them through uh, the evaluation piece, so scoring uh, bakery products so you can look at what are the defects and how do you correct those defects uh, you know when you're out there in the field so uh, it's it's I love doing I love teaching always have uh, it's one of the, the highlights of my my year is being able to do that and uh, so I've really enjoyed uh, teaching uh, that course and then I'm also on the advisory board for k-state so uh, I'm actually the chair chairman this year for for the advisory board so I'm really happy Good. about being able to contribute back uh, to that and being able to talk about programs that, that we should be considering uh, for for uh, the, the next round of generations that uh, we need to, to start teaching in, in food science yeah. and baking science as well. So I, I would say it's probably very important for the students to hear from an industry professional because nothing against professors, but sometimes they're teaching, you know, and not from a from a practical standpoint, because they may have never been in industry, but to have somebody from the industry come in and I'm sure that they, that your word has a lot of weight for the students. It all comes back to that reputation. <laughs> I met the guy who worked at Hostess and that people do get excited. It's funny how people get so excited when they find out oh, you talk to somebody who actually knew, ever made a Twinkie or made this, you know, cookie. And I'm, I'm like, yeah, but that's okay. But anyways, well, thank you for being here. Thank you for the entertaining conversation. And it's nice to walk down the memory lane with you. And uh, <laughs> and I know you still have a lot more things to do and yeah. uh, do, working with IFF and, and helping customers. So I really appreciate your time. Well, I appreciate you. I, I appreciate you inviting me to this. This has been a fun, fun, uh, you know, couple hours. And I really enjoyed, you know, talking with you and reconnecting and, and uh, talking about some of the, the past. <laughs> Thank you so much, Gilly. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for being here.